Chapter 17 of Trail's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. Trail's End by George W. Ogden. With clean hands. Seth Craddock was a defiant, although a fallen man. He refused to resign the office of marshal of the third-class city of Ascalon when Morgan released his feet at Judge Thaler's direction, allowing him to stand. Somebody brought his hat and put it down harshly on his small, turtle-like head, flaring out his big red ears. There he stood, glowering, dusty, blood on his face from an abrasion he had got in the rough handling at the end of Morgan's rope. Judge Thaler said it made no difference whether he gave up the office willingly. He was without a voice in the matter, anyhow. He was fired, and that's all there was to it. But no, said Seth, not at all. The statues upheld him, the Constitution supported him, and hell and damnation, and many other forces, which he enumerated in his red-tongued defiance, could not move him out of that office. He demanded to be allowed to consult his lawyer, he glared around and cursed the curious and unawed public which laughed at his plight and the figure he cut, ordering somebody to go and fetch the county attorney, on pain of death, when he should come again into the freedom of his hands. But nobody moved except to shift from one foot to the other and laugh. The terror seemed to have departed out of Seth Craddock's name and presence. A terrible man is no longer fearful when he has been dragged publicly at the end of a cow-rope and tied up in the public place like a calf for the branding-iron. The county attorney was discreet enough to keep his distance. He did not come forward with advice on habeas corpus and constitutional rights. Only Earl Grey, the druggist, with seven kinds of perfumery on his hair, came out of the crowd with smirking face, ingratiating, servile, offering Morgan a cigar. The look that Morgan gave him would have wilted the tobacco in its green leaf. It wilted druggist gray. He turned back into the crowd and eliminated himself from the day's adventure like smoke on the evening wind. Peyton was seen, soon after Craddock's dusty downfall, making his way back to the shelter of his hall, a cloud on his dark face, a sneer of contempt in his eyes. His bearing was proclamation that he had expected a great deal more of Seth Craddock, and that the support of his influence was from that moment withdrawn. But there was nothing in his manner of a disturbed or defeated man. Those who knew him best, indeed, felt that he had played only a preliminary hand, and, finding it weak, had taken up the deck for a stronger deal. Seth Craddock stood with his back to the station platform, hands bound behind him, his authority gone. A little way to one side, Morgan waited beside his horse, his pistol under his hand, rifle on the saddle, not so confident that all was won as to lay himself open to a surprise. Judge Thaler was holding a session with Craddock, the town, good and bad, looking on with varying emotions of mirth, disappointment, and disgust. Judge Thaler unbuckled Craddock's belt and remaining pistol picked up the empty weapon from the ground, sheathed it in the holster opposite its once terrifying mate, 
and gave them to Morgan. Morgan hung them on his saddle horn, and the wives and mothers of Ascalon, who had trembled for their husbands and sons when they heard the roar of those guns in days past, drew great breaths of relief, and looked into each other's faces and smiled. We can't hold you for any of the killings you've done here, Seth, though some of them were unjustified, we know, Judge Thaler said. You've been cleared by the coroner's jury in each case. There's no use for us to open them again. But you'll have to leave this town. Your friends went yesterday, escorted by Mr. Morgan, across the Arkansas River. You can follow them if you want to. You might overtake them somewhere down in the nation. You'll have to go in the same direction. In peace, if you will. Otherwise, if you won't. I'm marshal of this town, Seth still persisted, in the belief that forces were gathering to his rescue, one could see. The only way I'll ever leave till I'm ready to go will be in a box. Certainly, Seth did not end the defiance and declaration that way, nor issue it from his mouth in such pale and commonplace hues. Judge Thaler argued with him, after his kindly disposition, perhaps not a little sorry for the man who had outgrown his office and abused the friend who had elevated him to it. Seth remained as obdurate as a trapped wolf. He roved his eyes around, craned his long, wrinkled neck, looking for the sucker that was so long in coming. He repeated with blasting enlargement that the only way they could send him out of Ascalon would be in a box. Judge Sailor drew apart to consult Morgan in low tones. Morgan was undisturbed by Craddock's unbending opinion that he had plenty of law behind him to sustain his contention that he could not be removed from office. It did not matter how much ammunition a man had if he couldn't shoot it. It was Morgan's opinion, giving with the light humor quickening in his eyes, that they ought to take Craddock at his word. Ship him out, said Judge Thaler. In a box, Morgan nodded, face as sober as judgment, the humor growing in his eyes. But we can't butcher the fellow like a hog, Judge Thaler protested. Live hogs are shipped in boxes right along, Morgan explained. Judge Sailor saw the light. His pepper and salt whiskers twinkled and spread around his mouth, and rose so high in their bristling over his silent laughter that they threatened his eyes. He turned to Craddock, forcing a sober front. All right, Seth, we'll take you up on it. You're going out of town in a box, he said. Judge Sailor ordered the undertaker to bring over a coffin box, the longest one he had. The word ran like a prairie fire from those who heard the order given that they were going to shoot Craddock for his crimes and bury him on the spot. There was not a little disappointment, but more relief, in the public mind when it became understood that Craddock was not to be shot. As a mockery of his past oppression and terrible name, he was to be nailed up in a box and shipped out like a snake. And so it turned out again in Ascalon that comedy came in to end the play where tragedy had begun it. Morgan bore no part in this unexpected climax to his hard-straining and doubt-clouded day. He stood by watchful and alert, a great peace in his mind, a great lightness. He had come through it according to Rita Thayer's wish, according to his own desire, with no man's blood upon his hands. There were many willing ones who came forward to make light the labor of Seth Craddock's packing. They unbound his hands with derision and bundled him into the capacious long box against his strivings and curses with scorn. 
Morgan suggested the enclosure of a jug of water. Let him frizzle and fry, they said. They bore an auger hole or two in the box to give him air. And that was a greater humanity than he deserved. Morgan insisted upon at least a bottle of water and had his way against grumbling. The undertaker officiated, as if it were a regular funeral, putting long screws in the stout lid while citizens sat on it to hold the explosive old villain down. They fastened him in as securely as if he were a dead man, in all sobriety boxed up against the worms of the grave. Then the question rose of where to send him and how. On the first part of it, the public was of undivided mind. No matter where he went or in what direction, let it be far. On the second division, there was some argument. Some held for shipping him by freight as livestock and some were for express as the quickest way to the end of a long journey. For the farther out of sight he could be carried in the shortest possible time, they said, the better for all concerned. There the station agent was called in to lend the counsel of his official position. A man could not be shipped by freight if alive, he said. He could be sent as a corpse is sent by paying the rate of a fare and a half and stowing him in the baggage car with trunks and dogs. The undertaker was of the same opinion, which he expressed gravely with becoming sadness and gloom. Judge Saylor wrote the address on the shipping tag, the undertaker tacked it on Seth Caddock's case, and then the amazed people of Ascalon came forward surrounding the case and read, Chief of Police, Kansas City, Missouri. That was the consignee of the strangest shipment ever built out of Ascalon. People wondered what the Chief of Police would do with his gift. They wished him well of it with all their hearts. Meantime, Seth Craddock, with the blood of eight men on his hands, was making more noise in the coffin box than a sack of cats. It was a most undignified way for a man of his sanguinary reputation to accept this humiliation at the hands of a public that he had outraged. A mule in a box stall could not have made a greater clatter with heels against the planks than the fallen city marshal of Ascalon, drummed up with his on the stout end of the coffin box. He cursed as he kicked, called in muffled voice on his friends of his brief day of power to come and set him free. But the sycophants, who had hung to his heels like hand-fed dogs, when power glorified him like a glistening garment and exalted him high above other men, turned out, as all time-servers and cowardly courtiers always finish, when the object of their transitory adulation falls with his belly in the dust. They sneered, they jeered. They turned white-shirted coatless backs upon his box with derisive, despising laughter on their night-pale faces. Seth Craddock was a mighty man, as long as he had license to walk about and slay, but fastened up in a box like a corpse for shipment, at the rate of the dead, he was only a hull and an empty husk of a man. They said he was a coward. They had known it all along. It called for a coward to shoot men down like rabbits. That was not the way of a brave and worthy man. This great moral conclusion they reached readily enough, Seth Craddock securely caged before them. If Morgan's rope had missed its mark, if a snarl had shortened it a foot, if Craddock had been a second sooner, in starting to draw his gun, this wave of moral exaltation would not have descended upon Ascalon that day. 
there was some concern over the holding quality of the box people feared that craddock might burst out of it before going far and return against them for the reckoning so volubly threatened the undertaker quieted these fears by tapping the box round with his hammer pointing out its reinforced strength with melancholy pride a ghost might get out of it if some other undertaker put the lid on he said but even that thin and vaporous thing would have to call for help if he screwed him shut in that most competent container of the mortal remains of men thus assured the citizens carried the box in festive spirit with more charity and kindness toward old seth than he deserved and stood it on end in the shadow of the depot there was an auger hole on a level with seth's eye through which he could glower out for his last look on ascalon and the people who gathered round to deride him and triumph in his overthrow through the small opening seth cursed them checking such of them off by name as he recognized setting them down in his memory for the vengeance he declared he would return speedily and exact there he stood like don quixote in his cage his red eye to the hole swearing as terribly as any man that marched in that hard-boiled army in flanders long ago those who had been awed by his grim silence in the days when he ruled above all law in ascalon were surprised now by his volubility under provocation craddock could say as much as the next man it appeared unquestionably he could express his limited thoughts in words luridly strange he wearied of this arrangement at last and subsided long before the train came he lapsed into his natural blue sulkiness remaining as quiet behind his auger hole as one ready for the grave they loaded craddock on a truck when the train from the west whistled trundled him down the platform and posted him ready to load in the baggage car attended by a large jubilant crowd there was so much hilarity in this gathering for a funeral indeed and so much profanity denunciation and threat issuing out of the coffin box for seth broke out again the minute they moved him that the baggage man aboard the train demurred on receiving the shipment he closed the door against the eager citizens who mounted the truck to shove the box aboard leaving only opening enough for him to stand flatwise in and shout up the platform to the conductor the conductor was a notable man in his day on that pioneer railroad he was a bony irascible man fiery of face with a high hooked nose that had been smashed to one side in some battle when he was construction foreman in his days of lowly beginning he wore a pistol strapped around his long coat which garment was braided and buttoned like an ambassador's and he was notable throughout the land of cattle and cards as a man who could reach far and hit hard if seth craddock had applied to him for instruction in invective and profanity veteran that he was he would have been put at the very foot of the primer class now this mighty man came striding down the platform thrusting his way through the crowd with no gentle elbow hand on his gun displeasure ready to explode from his mouth the baggage man asked advice on accepting the proffered box with fare and a half ticket attached as in the case of a corpse the conductor remarked with terrible sarcasm that the corpse was the noisiest one he had ever encountered even in that cursed and benighted and seven times outcast hole he knocked on the box and demanded of the occupant an account of himself 
and the part he was bearing in this pleasant little episode, this beautiful little joke. Seth lifted up his muffled voice to say that it was no joke, at least to him. He explained his identity and denounced his captors, swearing vengeance to the last eyebrow. The conductor faced the crowd with disdainful severity. What were they trying to play off on him, anyhow? Who did they suppose he was? Maybe that was fun in Ascalon, but his company wasn't going to carry no man from nowhere against his will and be sued for it, burn him and box up the ashes, boil him and bottle the soup, reduce him by any comfortable means they saw fit, according to their humane way, fetch him there in any guise but that of a living man, and the company would haul him to Hades if they billed him to that destination but not in his present shape and form, not as a living, swearing, suit-threatening man. Take him the hell out of there, the conductor ordered in rising temper. Don't insult him and his road by coming around there to make them a part of their idle, life-wasting, time-gambling, blasted to the seven depths of Hades tricks. The baggage man closed the door. The conductor gave the signal to pull out, and the train departed, leaving Seth Craddock on the truck the rather shamed and dampened citizens standing around. They concluded that they would have to hang him, after all their trouble, for a more romantic, picturesque, and unusual exit, as hanging was such a common, ordinary way of getting rid of a distasteful man that the pleasure was taken out of their day. Judge Saylor was firmly against hanging. He ordered the undertaker to open the box, which he did with fear and trembling, seeing in a future hour the vengeance of Seth Craddock descending on his solemn head. Craddock, sweat-drenched and weak from his rebellion and the heat of his close quarters, sat up with scarcely a breath left in him for a curse. Just there delivered him to Morgan with instructions to lock him up. The city calaboose was an institution apart from the county jail. Due to some past rivalry between the county and city officials, the palatial jail was closed to offenders against the lowly and despised by the sheriff town ordinances. So out of its need, the city had built this little house with bars across the one small window and a barred door formed of wagon tires to close outside the one of wood. No great amount of business had ever been done in this calaboose, for minor infractions of the law were not troubled with in that town. If there ever was anybody left over from a shooting, he usually went along about his business or his pleasure until the coroner's jury assembled and let him off. The last man confined in the calaboose had stolen a bottle of whiskey, a grave and reprehensible offense which set all the town talking and speculating on the proper punishment. This poor bug had made a fire of his hay bedding in the night and perished as miserably as everybody said he deserved. The charred boards in one corner still attested to his well-merited end. Morgan was not at all confident of the retaining power of the calaboose. Neither was he greatly concerned. He believed that if Craddock could break out, he would make a streak away from Ascalon, hooked up at high speed, never to return. It was not in the nature of a man humbled from a high place, mocked by the lowly, derided by those whom he had oppressed, condemned by the false friends he had favored, to come back on an errand of revenge. 
The job was too general in a case like Craddock's. He would have to exterminate most of the town. They left him in the calaboose with whatever reflections were his. The window was too high in the wall for anybody on the outside to see in, or for Craddock, tall as he was, to see anything out of it but the sky. Public interest had fallen away since he was neither to be shipped out nor hanged, only locked up like a whiskey thief. Only a few boys hung around the calaboose, which stood apart in the center of at least half an acre of ground, as if ashamed of its office in a community that used it so seldom when it was needed so often. Morgan returned to the square for his horse, rather dissatisfied now with the day's developments. It was going to be troublesome to have this fellow on his hands. Judge Thayer should not have interfered with the last decree of public justice. It would have been over with by now. Rita Thayer was in the door of the newspaper office. She came to the edge of the sidewalk as Morgan approached, leading his horse. She did not reflect the public satisfaction from her handsome face and troubled eyes that Ascalon in general enjoyed over Craddock's humiliation. Morgan wondered why. I asked too much of you, Mr. Morgan, she said, coming at once to the matter that clouded her honest eyes. You couldn't ask too much of me, he returned, with no unction of flattery, but the cheerfully frank expression of an ingenuous heart. I didn't realize the disadvantage you would be under. I didn't know what I expected of you when I urged you into this. Meeting that desperate man with a rope instead of a gun? You didn't know I was going to meet him with a rope, he said. He stood before her, hat in hand, wholesomely honest, in his homely ruggedness, a flush of embarrassment tinging his face. The sun in his short hair seemed laughing, picking out little flecks of gold as mica flakes in the sea waves turn and flash. You might have been killed. When I saw him throw his hand to his gun, oh, it was terrible. So you're the editor now, he said cheerfully, trying to turn her from this disturbing subject. My heart jumped clear out of my mouth when you threw your rope. It came over and helped me, he said, in a matter sincere and grave. A little flame of color lifted in her pale cheek. She looked at the dusty road, her hand pressed to her bosom, as if to make certain that the truant heart had come back to her, like a dove to its coat, out of the storm. She looked up presently and smiled a bit, looked down again, the hot blood writing a confession in her face. I hope it did, she said. Morgan felt himself in such a suffocation of strange delight that he could find no word that seemed the right word and left it to silence, which perhaps was best. He looked at the road also, as if he would search there with her for grains of gold or for lost hearts which leap out of maidens' breasts in the white dust marked by many feet. Together they looked up, faces white, breath faltering on dry lips. So the fire leaps in a moment such as this and enwraps the soul. It is no mystery. It is no process of long distillation. In a moment, so. Here are his guns, said he, his voice trembling, as if strained in leaping the subject that lay in its door to go back to the business of the day. His guns, she repeated after him, shuddering at the thought. Hang them over your desk. You might need them. Now you're the editor. She accepted them from his hand, but dubiously, holding them far out from contact with her dress as something unclean. 
Morgan reproached himself for offering her these instruments, which had sent so many men to sudden, undefended death. He reached to relieve her hand. Let me do it for you, Miss Thayer. No, she denied him, putting down her qualm, clutching the heavy belt firmly. It's a notable trophy, a great distinction you're giving me, Mr. Morgan. I'm afraid you'll think I'm a coward, smiling wanly as she lifted her face. You're not afraid to edit the paper. That seems to me the most dangerous job in town. Most dangerous job in town, she reproved him, giving him to understand very plainly that she could name one attended by greater perils. They've only killed one editor so far. Can you shoot, he asked, as seriously concerned as if the fate of editors in Ascalon darkened over her already. Everybody in this town can shoot, she sighed. It's every boy's ambition to own and carry a pistol, and most of them do. I hope you'll never have to defend the independence of the press with arms, he said, making a small pleasantry of it. More than likely, they're gentlemen enough to let you say whatever you want to and make no kick. The headlight is going to be an awful joke with Riley Caldwell and me getting it out. But I'm not going to try to please anybody. That way, I may please them all. It sounds like the sensible way. Have you edited before? I used to help Mr. Smith, the editor they killed. That was in the summer vacation just. I taught school the rest of the time. You must have been the busiest person in town, he said, with pride in her activities, as if they had touched his own life long ago. I'm a poor stick of an editor, I'm afraid, though I seem to be all mussed up with legal notices and the sudden flood of news, and I can't set type worth a cent. Just let the news go, he suggested, not without concern, for the part he might bear in her chronicle of late events in Ascalon. Let the news go, she censured him, with her soft, chiding eyes. I wish I could write like Mr. Smith. I'd wake this town up. Poor man, his coat is hanging in the office by the desk. So suggestive of him, it makes me cry. I haven't the heart to take it away. It would seem like expelling his spirit from the place. He was a slender, gentle little man. More like a minister than an editor. It took an awful coward to shoot him down that way. You're right, I met him, Morgan said, remembering Dell Hutton among the wagons, his smoking gun in his hand. Sneaking little coward. Well, he'll hardly sling his gun down on you, Morgan reflected, as if he communed with himself, yet thinking that Hutton scarcely would be beyond even that. Hardly, she replied in abstraction. What are you going to do with that old brigand you got locked up in the calaboose? I'll expect we'll turn him loose in the morning. There doesn't seem to be anything we can hold him for, guilty as he is. If he'll leave and never come back, doubtfully, I'm glad now it turned out the way it did. I'm so thankful you didn't have to, that you came through without blood on your hands. It would have been a calamity the other way, he said. When Morgan went his way presently, leaving her in the door of the little box-like newspaper office, from where she gave him a parting smile, it was with a revised opinion of the day's achievements. He felt peculiarly exalted and satisfied. He had accomplished something, after all. Whatever this was, he did not confess, but he smiled and felt renewed with a lifting gladness, as he went on to the livery barn, his horse at his heels. End of chapter 17